my friends, perhaps even my running friends, welcome to another, yet another episode of the comically directionless Run Run Live podcast. I think we're about 14 years into this podcast journey. It's funny how time flies, isn't it? All my old friends out there. There really weren't that many of us back in 2007. It was a small family of runners talking about running with other <laughs> other runners. It was me, Steve, Nigel, Nick and Dan, Kevin with the extra milers and Chopper and a few others. And I bet if you asked any of us, we'd say we never expected to make any money or become famous from it. But secretly, we all probably did. Steve probably get, got the closest to that. He was like on TV and stuff and in newspapers. I think runners were early adopters of the podcast technology as a community because it's like a perfect storm, right? We spend so much time alone out on the roads and on the trails. This means we have a lot to think about, right? We think too much. Uh, but we also need something to listen to. So it's, yeah, it's a perfect storm for runners and creators podcasting. When I recorded my first show, I think it was in June of 2007, I had just run down Mount Washington after running the race up Mount Washington. And I pulled out my little Sony audio recorder and I talked about it. And that was in episode one. That would go up over that 4th of July weekend that year. And I threw in, in I threw in an interview with my running buddy Frank, who I still hang out with. I met Frank on a training run with a bunch of marathoners from Boston in the late nineties. And his story, like mine and like so many others that I've spoke to and that I've met over the years, was coming into running seriously later in life, discovering the marathon, then discovering the Boston marathon, and then getting hooked. And the rest, as they say, is history. And here we are, 20-plus years later. And I started out with an interview show format because some of the business podcasts that I was listening to at the time, they had that format, and I liked that nice, tight format. And it meant you didn't have to write or talk as much. You could use the interview as content. And I, my goal was to keep it under 45 minutes because it made me mad when I – was listening to podcasts, and I couldn't tell whether it was going to be 20 minutes or two hours, and I didn't like that inconsistency. And I didn't want the podcast to be about me. I wanted it to be about the listener, and I wanted to add value to that listener. My goal was to share everything that I had learned at this point in my running journey, which would have been about a decade in. I wanted to share all that stuff. And I wanted to share the joy of that adventure. And it wasn't about me, but ironically, I ended up being the target audience. So if you listen through the years of my show, it's me giving myself tips and tricks. It's me giving myself <laughs> inspirational speeches. It's me practicing my writing and my presentation skills on myself. It's like talking in the mirror, right? Some of you just happen to be along for the ride as well. And you know what? When I started the podcast, I didn't even know there were other running podcasts. I didn't, really. 
it, it wasn't until later that I met everyone. And I remember that first year going on uh, Runner's Roundtable. It was the show that we used to do. And I was super nervous to be talking with all these folks. It was like standing up in front of a big audience. So it's still a bit strange to me that I have talked into the ears of probably two or three million people at this point in time. Million? One million dollars. Uh, and by the way, all that content, 400 plus shows, think about that. We could feed that into an artificial intelligence engine right now, and you would have a very good simulation of me. It really would be really good. The algorithms are that good now, and you probably wouldn't need me anymore. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference. It's a tremendous training data set. So if my kids wanted to clone me, they could, they could just use that. Anyhow, enough reminiscing. I've got a few things for you this episode. First, I'll give you an update on what's going on in my athletic life, which is uh, a bit of a misnomer. Then I have a book review I wrote for my other podcast, the After the Apocalypse podcast, which I'm still doing. And finally, I will share an inspirational piece from a series I'm working on. And it's it's sort of the genesis of this is for when you get in a low spot in your life, when you get trapped down in a low spot in your life, how do you grow out of those? How do, how do you handle those and how do you grow out of them? And so I'm going to do a series on that. So first, the update. I think I told you last time that I had thrown out my back lifting weights. Yeah, well, yeah, it still hurts. So, you know, I think part of it is because I'm not very active right now. I'm doing a fair amount of chair sitting. Uh, so, but I decided not to push it and try to get back to the gym early. So I'm just going to let it heal. You know, <laughs> what's the point, right? Uh, instead, I'm doing a daily lower back stretching routine, which seems to help. And if anybody's interested in that, I can share it with you. It's very simple. It takes about less than 10 minutes, stretches out the back, especially if you're, if you're doing a lot of sitting. So I believe I also mentioned that I went back for my follow-up with the knee doctor. So I am 18 plus months into this knee injury. It was first diagnosed as a bruise on the knobby part of the bone in the knee. It's called the condyle. And the knee itself was in reasonable shape, but there was this stress fracture or stress bruise on the end of the bone that showed up on the MRI way back when. So I went back to the doctor a couple weeks ago. Figured time to check in again, right? And he did his poking around and sent me for another MRI. But this time, he made sure I didn't go to the cheap MRI place that my insurance company recommended. Yeah, because, you know why? Because the cheap one has a larger diameter uh, opening, basically. The tube that they slide people into is bigger because it's designed to accommodate the more, how shall we say, rotund among us. And because it, it's larger, it doesn't get as good a resolution on the images. So you get a, kind of a blurry image because you're further away. So there's another good reason not to let your girth get away with you. And by the way, I just typed girth incorrectly. I typed it as grith and discovered that grith is an old English word for temporary security. So there you go. Anyhow, I went and got the good MRI 
and then played phone tag with the assistant lady who is like a doctor, but not the doctor. But the doctor looked at the MRI and told her what to tell me. Huh. The medical profession in the U.S. sounds like a great Ponzi scheme based entirely around my sore knee. So I played phone tag with the lady proxy doctor because here's how it works. You need to call the office and leave a message with all your information, and then they call you back. But it seems that they have a special artificial intelligence-based algorithm that guarantees them to call back while you're on an important phone call with a customer. And then they leave a message that says, tag your ed, and the cycle starts anew. And this back and forth went on for a week or so until my messages started to get a little salty, like, hey, how about we set a time to talk, like when I'm available? I'll show up and you'll show up, and we'll call it, I don't know, an appointment. How about that? Wouldn't that be the adult and professional thing to do here? So finally, <laughs> she managed to get me. After hours, she called me back. I, I made them feel so bad they called me after hours. And it turns out the news is good. The bruise is smaller. It's healing, despite me being an idiot and trying to do running and all kinds of other activities on it. There is some swelling or irritation of the meniscus around the spot that's bruised. And this is what they think is causing the pain, which makes sense. Makes perfect sense to me. So next week... Going in to get a cortisone shot. Yay. And that theory is that's going to knock down the irritation and the pain will go away. They will probably want me after that to go to rehab. God help me. Waste a few more thousands of dollars and a few more hours of my life doing clamshells with stretchy bands under the guidance of a sports sciences dropout. Am I grumpy today? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a long way of saying, I think I'm about to start running again. And it's about damn time. I'm overweight. I'm out of shape. Maybe the Run Run Live 5.0 podcast will be me struggling through the couch to 5K. How about that? And I've also found out that there's a chance I can get back to Boston because there's a new non-binary category that uses the woman's qualifying time. So all I have to do is become gender neutral and I'm in. Just kidding, folks. Don't send me hate mail. Let's get started, shall we? On with the show. So I have a book report to share with you today. I am quite proud of myself for having read another from the classic fiction canon, Watership Down. Yes, I've been trying to fill in the egregious gaps in my reading history. Yes, there are important books, or even significant books, that I have not read. And even though I am a voracious reader, and am in firm possession of the finest prep school liberal arts education, I still find important books that I haven't read. And one of the places I find these gaps is on the ever-popular listicles like A Hundred Books Everyone Should Read Before They Turn Into a Pumpkin and The Ilk. A couple of weeks ago, I was perusing one such listicle on the interwebs. 
I was looking for my, my next victim, my next thing to read. And as I scanned down the list smugly, placing bright green imaginary check marks next to each entry, read that one, check, read that one, check, I came upon, at number 59, Sandwich Between Anna Karenina, check, read that one, and Memoir of a Geisha, check, read that one, the entry of, at number 59, Watership Down, and I paused. I had not read Watership Down. The title of the book, frankly, has always puzzled me. What is a watership? And why? Was it some sort of spaceship? Why was it down? Did it get shot down? Did it crash? And there were rabbits on the cover. I remember this title popping up on science fiction lists. So were these like alien rabbits that crash landed their watership or something? I don't know. Seemed like something I should look into. So I duly clicked and bought a nice used paperback to see what the story of these alien bunnies and their mystery ship would bring. So it turns out, this is one of those English versus American language things, as the playwright George Bernard Shaw is attributed to having quipped, Britain and the U.S. are, quote, two nations separated by a common language. It turns out, there are no spaceships or aliens involved at all. Watership Down is a place in southeastern England, and the book is about rabbits. Rabbits having an adventure. <laughs> Watership Down was written by Richard Adams, not Douglas Adams, Richard Adams, and published in 1972. Let me stop right here and say I like this book. I liked it because it is different, but at the same time it's universal. It's one of those books which you will find many stories about, right? You will find many examples of these on your top 100 lists. And we're frankly lucky we got these books published at all because they're different. Different is good in my book. Different makes it hard to publish. It is the first book written by Richard Adams. And the genesis of this work is from stories that he improvised on long car rides to tell his daughters. And eventually his daughters insisted that he write them down. He did, and that became Watership Down. Every publisher in London turned the manuscript down. Talking rabbits, really? Except one small independent publisher who took a chance. And the book took off and became a classic by word of mouth and the rest is, as they say, history. So why did this book resonate? Well, like I said, it's different in the sense that it chronicles the journey of a group of rabbits. But within that story, there is a universal sameness that resonates with us. There's a universal resonance. And it's a story that can only come from British people, I think because it's fermented in the mind of a British scholar in the way that only British scholars' minds can ferment. Love it or hate it, the classic British education makes for interesting authors. 
They're strapped to medieval oaken desks in preparatory schools at a young age and force-fed the Western Codex from Homer to Shakespeare to Churchill. And this spawns greatly entertaining hallucinations like The Hobbit and Watership Down. The universal themes in Watership Down, whether intentional or not, call back to every great hero's journey since the Ennead. There are themes of power corrupting, of leadership, of cooperation. There is bravery and trickery. On the one hand, it's all very obvious. But when you drive these themes through the anthropomorphic, that's a hard word to say, viewpoint of the rabbits, it makes the obvious themes feel fresh and feel less obvious. It somehow contextualizes the storytelling in a wonderful way. At times I was reminded of Tolkien. At times I was reminded of Homer. At times I was reminded of veiled British political commentaries like Alice in Wonderland and The Animal Farm. And at times I sensed the religious storytelling of the screw tape letters or The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It just felt like I was comfortably ensconced in an old cottage in the Cotswolds with a roaring fire surrounded by all these literary voices. And that's what this book is like. Even if Adams didn't intend all of these impressions, he can't help but let them bleed through. Adams said in interviews that none of this was intentional. He was just storytelling for his daughters. And I think that's what makes the universal themes in Watership Down so wonderful. It makes the story so wonderful. These themes, they come through as guileless and even accidental. And in that way, they are even more universal. Watership Down. Well-written, great descriptive prose, nuanced in its unintentional references, a good story to read to your kids. I don't know how I missed it for this long. Introduction, the highs and the lows. Back to basics. This is a series I'm doing, which I'm going to say how to rebuild yourself from a personal low point, both mentally and physically. And I like to do this when I get into these cycles in my life, when things start to feel a little out of reach. I like to go back to the basics and say, okay, where do we start? And when I look back over the long arc of my life, I see these highs and these lows. The highs are highs, the lows are low. I mean, that's the way life is, right? Even though I know this, I still find myself frequently wallowing in a low point and forgetting that these low points are natural and that, yes, they are a gift. They are a gift because they force you to reassess your approach to change, to grow. I mean, the high points in our lives, they're great. The highs are gifts too. And you need to step back, take time, enjoy, and be grateful for those. But the peaks, these peaks of achievement, these peaks of gain, they're just waypoints as well. They don't last. The highs, they're gifts of joy, but they don't teach us as much. Or maybe we just don't listen to the lessons that they teach because we're too busy enjoying ourselves. And we forget that those high points 
are not random events. They don't just happen. They are the accumulation of actions and decisions that you have made over time. They are the result. They're the result of actions. So no one just shows up and runs a 100-mile race, right? Well, no smart person. I mean, it requires months, maybe even years of change, of decisions, of training, of lifestyle changes, of preparation. And no one just shows up and wins, you know, that interview for the job that they want that will bring abundance into their life and abundance to their families. They don't show up for that and win it without doing the preparation and the groundwork for that interview. And no one walks into any exam and aces it without studying. And no one lucks into a successful business venture. Our highs, our victories, are products of our sustained choices and actions. The high points can be deceiving as waypoints. Even the work and experience to get you to that high point is just part of the journey. The overlooked and ultimately important part of your journey and of those high points are the low points. And you, you should feel just as grateful for the low points. They're a gift. They allow you to reevaluate what you're doing on your journey. They enable you to let go of things that are not serving you. The low points are the seeds of your success. Embrace them. Call them what you want. Seasonal disorder, depression. What are the causes? You lose a job. You lose a deal. You get injured. You get sick. You have a broken relationship, whatever, whatever the cause. They come as part of the journey, part of the natural cycle of human existence. And sometimes they're external, sometimes they're internal. The precipitating event may be external, but the pain and the impact we suffer from them, that's internal. And this is an important thing to understand when considering your low points, They may be precipitated by some event, like losing a job or getting sick or injured. But because of this, we'll tend to blame external events for the low point. I'm depressed because I lost my job. And this ultimately is a mistake, and it'll slow your recovery. For example, if you lost your job, then one of two things happened. First, some external event out of your control eliminated your job and there was nothing you could do about it. Or second, more likely, you made some decisions or took some actions that caused the job to no longer be a fit for you. The bottom line here is that it's not who did what to us that matters. We can't change that. It's how we react. It's how we shift our journey in response. It's how we use that low point as fuel to adjust our trajectory. And one of the truly great gifts that the low points in our lives give us is the ability to return to the basics. When you have lost something, your response should be to assess what remains. You are still you. And you have just been given an opportunity to return to the basics, to reassess your journey. And that's what I'm going to talk about in this series. So let's go ahead and return to the basics and rebuild for the next stage of our journey.